Welcome to Gin and Topic. I'm Sarah. And I'm Anya. And every week we seek to learn a little bit of something about absolutely anything. All with the help from experts and rather a lot of gin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) So, today... We are talking to Dr. Sean Elias, and he is an immunologist and science communicator based at the Jenner Institute, University of Oxford. Oh, darling. And he, um, since he joined the Institute in 2008, uh, Sean has worked on a number of studies and clinical trials testing vaccines developed against a host of different infectious diseases, including malaria, Ebola, salmonella. Oh, the big ones. The both big in ones. UK and Yeah, the Africa. big ones. Yeah. 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 So he's been working on those. And, of course, got your klaxon ready? Ah! He's also been working during <laughs> Sorry, the pandemic. That wasn't the normal um, As part of the Oxford COVID vaccine communications team. Um, so, yes, yeah, so he's been making sure that they're um, providing scientifically accurate information directly from the team to the public and worldwide media. Not on Facebook from your Auntie Jill. Not on Facebook from your Auntie Jill? Oh, you haven't seen all those memes no, about people who are believing their Facebook posts about vaccines from Auntie no, Jill. No, well, I think them. he's probably trying to get to, Auntie yeah, Jill exactly. to yeah. stop. Yeah. So anyway, our topic is vaccines from concept to clinic. Mm-hmm. And our question is, how do we decide when a vaccine is needed and how do we go about making and testing it? Oh, Lordy. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. And we might talk about your Auntie Jill too. I don't have an Auntie Jill. Nor do I. So let us get Sean in and we'll talk about the gin. Okay. That we're going to taste with him. Awesome stuff, right? We can pour gin then. Go on then. Here you go. Thanks. Have a glass. Lovely. Oh, I've got orange with it today, have I? You have got orange Lovely. with it. Lovely. I've got a glass too. One step ahead. Excellent. And we are drinking the Oxford Botanic Garden Physic Gin. Tell us why. We are indeed. It's so pretty. Well, it's a lovely bottle and that's kind of the one of the selling points. So the unique thing about the Physic Gin is it's the only alcohol ever to have official collaboration with the University of Oxford and have the University of Oxford crest oh. Um Also, the distillery is in the centre of Oxford, literally a few minutes walk from my uh, lab. Um, and I used to live across the road from it. Um, so it's quite a new distillery. It's only about five years old. Um, can't open it. <laughs> Do you want me to <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a got nice a wooden lid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to just like packaging uh, rage. I got it. I got it. Okay. I got it. Good. So it's well a done. new distillery. Yes, it's about five years old. Um, and their kind of unique selling point is it's kind of grain to glass. So it's kind of they grow with collaboration with farmers. They grow their own um, kind of, in this case, it's a rye. Uh, kind of rye is the base spirit. Um, and yeah, so they get they get farmers to grow it, and they bring it in straight, and they make the alcohol on site rather than a lot of uh, gin distilleries actually buy in the, the spirits yeah. as they are. So I think there's only five or six in the in the country which do that. Um, and as I said, they use rye instead of kind of the uh, the kind of uh, uh, grains, and it's also a, quite a unique rye. So it's rather than the kind of monoculture, which is the kind of standard way that you grow kind of grains for making any kind of spirit. It's um, actually a really old heritage grain. Oh, so it's like the cute. kind of stuff that they basically took off a thatched roof and found it in like 200 years ago, the kind of the species, and then grew it up from that. So it got quite unique tastes. And not only gin, they've, they're also a whiskey distillery. So obviously, like most, they make the gin first. Um, and the whiskey came out uh, at the start of this year. And that has really unique flavour because they use this kind of heritage grain. So it's a very nice distillery. Um, it's got some very nice products. And I am an absolute fan um, and have pretty much everything that they make. So. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks right. So well, let's have Cheers. a try. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Ooh. <clears throat> and the name comes from the Physic Garden, which is in the Oxford Botanical Garden. It was the kind of first garden that they had uh, where they started kind of growing stuff for the kind of the old university when it first was kind of founded for 500 odd years ago. 
Um, and so they use a lot of the kind of um, some of the herbs and stuff are actually directly from the University Botanical Garden. I was yeah. going to say it's a bit herby. It's mm. nice. Mm. It's also quite alcoholic. You made it rather strong, Sarah. Would you like a little more? Tonic? <laughs> no, no, it's are okay. I'll just it, slowly Tom? sit. Excellent. Right. With this gin, we are talking vaccines, mm-hmm. and you get to drink your gin now whilst we discuss. Our knowledge, or anything that vaguely connects <laughs> A sort with of thought that might be there, possibly dragging out of the depths of yeah. our yeah. useless information. Yeah, we have lots of that, and then we can, yeah, you can then correct us <laughs> afterwards. Um, so okay, ready, break it down for me. Vaccines from concept. To clinic. Okay, I understand what a concept is. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. I've watched The Apprentice. <laughs> nice. Thank you very much. Uh, I understand, I think, what a clinic is. Mm-hmm. So that's a good start. Yeah. Vaccine. Path the... Path the... There's a path something in them. I remember that. <laughs> Not like and a garden path. No. 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 <laughs> I want to say pathogen. But uh-huh. I'm not sure if that's right. Nice. Ah, I'm getting a thumbs up. Yes, look at me go. I love it. And Technical terms are us. Well, I did actually do a biology GCSE, would you Oh, well, believe? there you go. You can make a vaccine then. Absolutely. Yeah. I could do it tomorrow, I'm sure. Dissect a frog and then make did a dissect vaccine. Dissect a frog. Or did you not? No. What did you dissect? You're going off on a tangent. Yeah. I know, but I dissected fish a frog. Fish head. Fish head. Yeah, it was gross. Grim. Uh... Don't know if you could use a fish head to make a vaccine. Stop it. I'm trying to track up my knowledge and you're distracting me with the fish head. It's very <laughs> rude. Um, they put little bits of the thing that yes. they're vaccinating you against in there. Yeah. And there was something to do with it was smallpox first. Or there was something to do with a cow. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, oh, see, I'm actually I very intelligent. I going on there like, as well. I would look have at me up go. Smallpox and a cow. I'm a genius. Sarah. I love it. You Thank are you. a genius. And that's about where it stops. I understand the basic idea. I like vaccines, apart from I don't actually like needles, so I can't look when they're doing them, but I like what they do for yeah. me. Yeah. I find it quite mind blowing that you can go from here's something that is a problem to we'll take it into a lab and we will create your defense system. And this for is it. the bit I don't know anything about how they go i know the theories how it actually happens it's a bit like uh, i think so have we got anything else uh what else have i got um oh i think uh assays that's what i have well look you see i got some nods all right i don't know and oh let me think of our Co- do you want klaxon again covid briefings klaxon oh, <laughs> yeah ben edit something better in i haven't got the energy today let's think okay i'm just going to throw things that come out of briefings okay. mrna Blah. i have no idea um efficacy there's a nice one the fuck you on about i can give you the different brands of vaccine I'm, co- I'm guessing they're brands, types, brands. I don't know. It feels like a brand well, at this point. I think for the COVID ones, we've got the brand names and that yeah. race to create. It was the vaccines. race to do it. We, they did it speedily. I mean, speedily. I was impressed. Super speedy. Yeah. And then, of course, having to keep redoing it. So thinking about the flu vaccine, the fact that... They pick different strands. Every the year strands you have each to have something yeah. different. I know things. And that the vaccine isn't a cure. No, it's protection. Yeah. It's like bubble wrap around your body. Oh, I love it. Thank little you. bubble wrap little little bubble wrap suit around you that kind of is like, no. Well, I'm kind of imagining it, but you put it in your body and then it just does it inside. Oh, oh no, that make, like, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> I don't like that. So there you go. That is, I think, everything <laughs> we can dredge up for now. <laughs> I feel like that was better than we normally do. We actually had something. Yeah, so that was a you plus. had smallpox and a cow. I mean, I remember that lesson. Well, you didn't have me. smallpox. Not that I'm aware of. Didn't cow either. <laughs> no. <laughs> so where are we going to start then? Do we start from vaccines as a concept and what that is? Where do you want to start telling us and filling us in with all our missing knowledge? I think let's start with the cow. I think that is probably the best starting point you can go for. Um, So kind of the the smallpox vaccine was developed by Edward Jenner, who is obviously who our vaccine group is named after. So I work at the Jenner Institute. Um, And I mean, we actually take the name vaccines come from directly from cow. So vaca is the Latin for cow. 
So that's where we get the name. Oh my gosh, I'm so um, good. French for cow as well, isn't it? Yeah, I've never knew that. We're just naming different ways to say cow now, are we? (laughs) Somebody's trying to get points for doing something completely irrelevant. (laughs) Moving on. Indeed. So yeah, so obviously the first... We say well, traditionally we say the first vaccine was developed by Edward Jenner. The first smallpox vaccine was, but he actually wasn't the first person to come up with the concept of, of vaccination. Um, before that, um, kind of in the 1800s, there's this idea of variolation, which was kind of similar to vaccination, where essentially they take a bit of kind of I suppose people's pussy wounds and then just kind of put that in you uh, in a open up a cut, put a bit of pussy wound in, and kind of stimulate an immune response. Lovely. And actually, the kind of first person who kind of did that in the UK uh, was a woman. Um, I forget her name. It was a kind of baroness or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so then and now women have played an important role in, in vaccines. Sometimes it's a baroness, darling. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Edward Jenner obviously produced, came up with the smallpox vaccine by taking um, essentially a different uh, uh, kind of virus to smallpox, which was cowpox, uh, which he noticed that infected milkmaids. Um, and kind of realised that you can give that and it protects people against smallpox. Uh, Quite a while to kind of obviously eradicate smallpox, but obviously we eventually did do it. And it's obviously kind of the the foundation for kind of why we vaccinate and the kind of best inspiration we've got for that. And because that's the thing we were saying about vaccine not being the cure, but it's that protection from it. So eventually until to the point where it's no longer in circulation and then it's like we've cured it because it... Not around, or oh, until someone accidentally releases it from a lab. In the case of smallpox, which was the last outbreak of smallpox, was accidentally released because someone found it at the back of their freezer. Oh god, I bet someone felt really bad that day. Oh, could you imagine? That's your worst day at work. You come home, you're like, oh, honey, I fucked up. Yeah, would I you? Fucked up would bad. you? I think you just go home knowing inside. You keep that shame and pretending with you forever. You'd be like, oh, I don't you. know who did that. It was probably Colin. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah, I didn't go anywhere Maybe near that Maybe we're freezer. terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the principles from obviously those kind of early days are very much what we kind of do now. So obviously you mentioned it's about protection. So obviously um, the idea is you can produce an immune response in someone but that can prevent them from being infected in the future if they see that pathogen. And they get a great word to use, um, which we'll use a lot in today's talk. Um, but yeah, so obviously you can basically protect, protect someone from being infected in future. Mm-hmm. Now, the kind of thing is that most people think oh yeah it's a vaccine it works 100% of the time in the same way that cures and stuff if I get x disease I can take an antibiotic mm-hmm. and it gets rid of it now obviously most medical interventions aren't perfect um, obviously in the case we mentioned smallpox everyone goes oh yeah first vaccine it was perfect it eradicated the disease actually we've only eradicated one disease since smallpox which was rinderpest which is a cattle disease never Nothing heard else of is really no. kind of <laughs> exactly well, this doesn't exist anymore, which is a good thing. Um, but probably the closest other kind of disease that we've got to is polio. And we're still mm. being kind of battling, trying to get the last stages of getting rid of polio for quite a few years. There's only really two countries where it's still there. Um, and yeah, it's quite difficult to kind of take that last step to get rid of it. Mm. Um, but this idea that it's it's not a cure, like I say, a cure is typically something you obviously take afterwards. Um, to kind of get rid of an existing condition. Um, obviously, the reason vaccines are so great and why they produce, have the best kind of um, economical value for any medical in- intervention is because they just stop everything outright if they work perfectly. Mm. I was just thinking about how you take it for granted then, or at least we take it for granted, that you just have your jabs as you go through your through you, do. you have your set jabs. You have ones when you're a baby and you have ones when you're in high school. And, and you just follow that mm-hmm. sort of programme of jabs to protect you from those in the future. I think this is why the pandemic's been so difficult for a lot of people to kind of comprehend um, because, yeah, I mean, particularly in the West, we're blessed that we don't really have that many major diseases that cause outbreaks. And most people will kind of think of, oh, you got an outbreak. Oh, there might be some measles. There might be some mumps for university students and things like that. Um, and for vaccine preventable diseases, we don't really get much mm. outbreaks. Polio is the best example. If you speak to uh, kind of people who are kind of uh, old enough to be around in the war, they know what it's like to, to grow up with this risk of this infectious disease that can essentially paralyze mm. you. Um, and this idea this that visual of people in the, the kind of... I was going to say, because all my knowledge of polio comes from call the midwife yeah. <laughs> school stuff <laughs> like yeah and 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 this visual of people in the kind of iron lungs those yeah. big machines that essentially 
that was a fear and there was a genuine fear. We don't have that fear anymore. So because of that, people get quite lax about kind of vaccines and have been over the years. And anti-vax sentiment has been growing in the lead up to the pandemic. And unfortunately, that's kind of bubbling over now. I think it also didn't help that you were just given it on a sugar cube. You know, how how can you make it appear to just be Wait, a ridiculous vaccine when you're giving yeah. it on a sugar cube? You were, you were given it on a sugar cube. Polio vaccine, yeah. But... Yeah, it's all, all drops. The one we've got now is just you literally a few drops on a tongue, or as you said, a sugar cube. I remember having yeah, it as a sugar cube yeah. when I was little. Oh my god! Um, and that was just the best thing ever. And you're oh, yeah. there just going, you know, well, what is the connection with any sort of significant scientific interest when it's just like, yeah, I have a sugar cube. Oh, that'd be so good. The one thing I don't like about vaccine is the needles. And I know it's ironic, yeah. someone who's literally had a needle through her nose, but. <laughs> It's very true. I mean, this actually, like, actually, one of the biggest reasons for vaccine hesitancy is is needles. Mm. I mean, in a lot of people, um, and I, I'm actually quite the, the same. Like, I don't particularly like needles myself. But in the past, when I was little, I mean, now I'm a bit better because I'm quite used to kind of uh, dealing with it. So, somebody who doesn't love needles was like, I know what I want to do with my career here: vaccines. <laughs> yep. I as a as a kid, I really didn't like blood and fainted at the sight of blood. And I've spent a lot of the last 13 years literally playing with blood in the lab. But I'm all right, because it's other people's blood. It's not my own. It's my own blood I don't like. But yeah, that's the irony. (laughs) And so how do you, right from the start then, how do you then decide, right, we need a vaccine for this? Yeah, so the first step, obviously, I mean, if you are a scientist going, I want to make a vaccine. So the first thing is, what do we need a vaccine for? Um, and they're kind of two general categories of things we need vaccines for. There's your kind of outbreak pathogens. So kind of things like your flu, your coronaviruses, things that pop up and cause a lot of disease. And we go stand back and go, whoa, this is fucking dangerous. Um, and then there's the stuff that's been around for a really long time that we have kind of tried to make vaccines for and maybe haven't successfully made vaccines for. Um, or we've kind of got a subpar vaccine and just go, yeah, that's OK. But let's go move on to other kind of more important stuff. Um, I mean, the classic example of one a disease that's been around literally since the inception of humanity and when we evolved from chimpanzees is malaria. Mm. And it's only this year that we've kind of had the real first positive kind of um, results showing that we can make a vaccine that actually looks particularly good. And I mean, our institute's been working on malaria vaccines for nearly 20 years. Wow. And we're only just there. Um, other people have been working for even longer than that. And the reason for something like Though, like malaria, or what's another one's tuberculosis. We have the BCG vaccine, which a lot of us will have in school. It's kind of phased out a little bit, really, unless you're in kind of in central London and things. Um, that vaccine's actually not really very good at all. Like, it's it's okay in kind of Western populations. <laughs> so all these people with massive scars on their arms and the pain because the the original BCG it's was nasty. a massive yeah. needle. Oh, is that what that's from? So oh, thank God it all didn't those yeah. people have just had a bollocks vaccine put in their arm. Well, it's it's it's, so it's actually not too bad in Western populations, for example. But if you actually give it, use it in like an African populations or in places kind of in Asia and stuff, um, just because partly down to genetics, partly down to environmental Mm. bacteria and things like that. So it kind of confuses our immune system a little bit. The vaccine just isn't perfect. It's not bad, but it's not perfect. Room for improvement. Room for improvement. improvement, Well, and they they did improve the delivery of the vaccine because I had a stamp of, I think it was like 24 Mm. needles or something ridiculous. No, because it was really easy. You just went like, that's it. And it was done. Quick little punch there. Nice. Thank you. Like an excuse. (laughs) But yeah, so... These, I was just saying, these pathogens kind of have something in common, which is they're quite complicated. Like, like we think of viruses and bacteria. Yeah, viruses are really simple generally. They kind of only have a few different components that make them up. Bacteria are a bit more complicated. If you look at um, malaria, which is caused by uh, caused by Plasmodium, um, either falciparum or vivax, which are the two most common ones, they're really complicated pathogens and re- like they're parasites. Mm. So they've got multiple stages. They kind of first, when you get bitten by a mosquito, which obviously transmits malaria, first of all, they go to your liver. There's a stage that it lives in your liver. Then they come out after a week. They go into your blood. They go around your blood, infecting your red blood cells for a bit. And then another mosquito bites you and then takes the, on those parasites. And then they have another stage, which they kind of change shape and, and form in the gut of the mosquito oh. before they go on to another one. So it's so complicated. Yeah. There's lots of different different parts of it which we can make vaccines and it means when they change to the next stage the previous vaccine against the other stage doesn't necessarily work so we've had to kind of work either multi-stage 
or try and develop a vaccine that's kind of can work across multiple stages, which is not very okay. Because that was going to be my question then, in terms of malaria, as you said, you know, been working on it for twenty years and have only just started to get to a point where there might be something that can work, and yet we've seen with coronavirus within what has felt like rapid time this race and vaccine been created that seems to be effective and is that because as you said the complexity of the thing that you're trying to create the vaccine for yeah very much so so when we look at a pathogen or a disease if we're trying to develop a vaccine we look at the components on it so generally we look on things on the outside and go right what does this pathogen use these things on the outside to do so in the case of coronavirus it uses spikes to get into the cell so for other viruses, we kind of use a similar concept and we look for bits that help it get into cells and cause disease. When it comes to like parasites and things like that, they have a lot more of those things on the outside. And sometimes those things on the outside vary mm. a lot. Um, and if they vary a lot, it makes it very difficult to make one vaccine for all the different strains, or all the different variants of that disease. Things like malaria can also change them willy nilly or depending on what stage of infection to confuse your immune system or just confuse other parasites and things. Um, so that making that decision is obviously part of it. When you've got hundreds and hundreds of choices, as it's kind of similar to malaria, you have to test each individual one. So, for example, in my PhD, I worked on two different vaccine candidates for malaria, both of which we found out were completely useless and have kind of gone in the bin now. Um, doesn't, does it make that make my PhD useless? Well, maybe, but who knows? Um, I had fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, with coronavirus, we were, we were kind of lucky. So we'd previously done some work on other coronaviruses. In particular, um, in the Jenner Institute, we worked on a vaccine for a coronavirus called MERS, so that's Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is one that essentially came from camels and you particularly find in kind of Middle Wait, East. hold on, because I'm they lost used... here. There were other <laughs> coronaviruses. Yes, so there are multiple coronaviruses. Yeah. Um, so actually, a lot of them are circulating. There's a couple of um, different ones that you just kind of get circulating as common colds. Okay. Um, so not particularly well-known ones that... Yeah, you just kind of get. Remember, common colds, everyone thinks of is one thing. It's actually hundreds of different viruses. Yeah. So the most common is rhinovirus, um, but actually coronavirus is quite common and there's probably tens of uh, tens of the different ones that can cause common colds. We cold. just got really um, unlucky that the really great one was like, you know what, time for me to party. <laughs> yep. Um, and so the kind of historic ones were SARS, like SARS-1, um, which is obviously the close cousin to SARS-CoV-2, which we have now, and Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is kind of a cousin to it. Um, and because we'd worked on a vaccine for that, we kind of knew that actually if you developed a vaccine against the spike protein, mm-hmm. um, that's actually a good potential candidate. And so that meant that we didn't have to spend that, all that time going, now, what are all the different parts of this yeah. coronavirus? Which one should we make a vaccine for? Or making and testing 10 different candidates at once. Um, and as I said, viruses can be quite simple, um, but equally viruses can be really confusing. Mm. So if you take something like HIV, it's a really difficult virus. And well, we have been trying to make a vaccine and throwing lots of money at it for a very long mm. time. So we could be call us count ourselves lucky that actually this was a relatively simple virus in some means. Um, although it's obviously turned out to be a bit more difficult than uh, we initially hoped for. Anyway. And is that the difficulty as well in that the virus doesn't stay the same? Yeah. So obviously, I mean, we expect a virus to mutate. It's kind of the one characteristic of a virus that you can count on. Um, and so with any vaccine, you kind of expect uh, mutations in the population. Um, but I suppose the kind of thing with a pandemic is that there's so many numbers of viruses at any one time, the chances of those mutations occurring um, are increased. And that obviously makes the picture mm. a little bit more difficult to plan. And it's very difficult to kind of plan for exactly where the mutations are going to happen you can kind of predict that they're usually at certain points so in the case of of covid we know that spike protein helps it get into cells so it has to bind on if you think about it kind of gripping onto the cell and pulling itself inside now you know that the point of where it interacts with the cell is going to be limited it can mutate a bit to make it better but there's certain things it can't do. So obviously, if you, for example, if your hand is very good for opening a door, if you mutate, mutate your hand so it's in a completely different shape, it might no be, longer be any good at opening a door. Um, so there's some limitations to that. Um, and we know that the parts that a vaccine will target obviously are very effective if they prevent that function. Mm. But equally, sometimes you want to target the parts that maybe don't change or they're the bit best kind of parts of the, of the kind of uh, spike protein to mm. kind of target the bits that the virus can't change without handicapping itself. Mm. Um, but it's, so it's a constant battle. It's no different to 
Um, if you look in, in kind of bio, biology across it, it's an arms race. If you look at cheetahs versus gazelles, the gazelle gets quicker, the cheetah gets quicker, they just kind of chase each other. Um, the virus will always mutate and our immune system will also be, it can adapt um, to kind of counter that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can speed up that process by adapting um, our vaccines yeah. and also kind of uh, using vaccines in different ways to kind of promote an, a good immune response and try and stay one step ahead. But yeah. it's uh, obviously an ongoing battle. So... I'm not going to talk specifically about COVID here. We're going to widen it up because I feel like we could all get too intense about this. But this whole anti-vax thing that is going on, why... And it isn't just COVID. It's not just COVID, it's all sorts. <clears throat> nope. But why is that thing when we can clearly say this vaccine is going to help with this thing, why is it a thing that people aren't wanting it? I think it's important to kind of note, yeah, anti-vax sentiment is not just a single thing. No. Um, I think, and I think there's, you have to kind of be really careful to kind of separate the two kind of areas. Mm. So you've got people who are anti-vax, which is kind of more militant, and then you've got people who are genuinely hesitant mm. and have reasons for that fear. And I think if you focus on the kind of people who have genuine reasons first, they're the ones you can kind of deal with and they're the ones you can kind of talk to and it's about patience and listening to what people mm. have to say and obviously countering misinformation with information. Mm-hmm. Because often it's down to two things. It's either down to lack of education um, in terms of access to information um, or it's just down to misunderstanding what is actually really quite complicated mm-hmm. science. That's quite easy. That's yeah. quite easy to <laughs> misunderstand complicated yeah. science. <laughs> So particularly, it's interesting when you look at kind of with vaccines. Now, a lot of the vaccines in the past um, have been what we call kind of traditional vaccine methods. So um, you take basically a part of the virus bacteria from the outside, essentially grow it in the lab, and then you put that into your vaccine and use it as the vaccine. Now, people are okay with that because they kind of know, oh, yeah, you take stuff off, put it in or use it in, in, in the case of a lot of older vaccines, essentially the whole virus or whole bacteria, which you've killed or disabled in the mm. lab. So you're like, oh, yeah, it's actually the real thing that's been weakened. We're using that. They know where that came from. With the newer vaccines, you've got kind of two these two new technologies. So you've got RNA vaccines and you've got kind of uh, viral vectored vaccines, which is like the Oxford AstraZeneca one that we developed. And because these you work in a different way that is quite sciencey, people kind of go, oh, I don't really quite mm-hmm. understand that. And so the way they work is rather than use that part of it, of the, of the kind of pathogen, they use the genetic information that encodes for that that part of the pathogen. Which is straight away harder to understand. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it could be DNA, it could be RNA. Yeah. Um, so it's two different things. Most people know what DNA is because, you know, everyone's seen Jurassic Park and they're like, oh yeah, DNA <laughs> growth, they make things from I DNA. I silent witness. Um, <laughs> or, or they know it from kind of medical things. Yeah. I, used the, I used the Jurassic Park one because that's what Boris Johnson did, said when he came to the lab and saw all kind of big freezers where we kind of store things in liquid nitrogen of like, oh, it's like Jurassic course Park. he did <laughs> moving swiftly um, on <laughs> indeed um and so because you're introducing these different kind of things into your body and essentially your body makes those parts of the vaccine that stimulate an immune response they make the same protein that you would normally put in a vaccine but they're doing it by an indirect mechanism um, and this scares people because there's that unfamiliarity. What's RNA? Okay, I've heard of DNA, but I've not heard of RNA. Mm. And obviously, RNA is just an earlier state, a kind of different stage in the process. Like, mm. kind of, so you kind of go from DNA to RNA, and you can then you can obviously make proteins and stuff in, in the kind of cell. Um, we will go into the kind of super de- uh, definition and the mechanisms because obviously it's not necessarily a science lesson. Um, <clears throat> As I hear this, phew, oh my God, oh, I can breathe, it's okay, I'm and not about to be tested. There isn't going to be a test, there isn't a I test. I don't want a boy. Um, but that's the reason, like everyone doesn't want to necessarily know, they want to know that it works, and they want to know that it's safe. I'm one of those awful people who I just don't even care what you put in my body. I'm like, yeah, go for it. If you're telling me it's good, I trust you, go mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. And that's because I've been on the pill since I was 15. And every time they go, it could kill you. And I go, oh, I really don't care. <laughs> I've been reading that on the it's labels fine. all the time. It's okay. Put it in me. <laughs> and people forget these things. This, I mean, things like paracetamol. Yeah. People take paracetamol for a hangover. People take <laughs> paracetamol for this and that and literally sometimes just, ah, I have one to sleep. But, you know, these have gone undergone the same processes and I think, but we just, they've been around for a very long, long period of time. Mm-hmm. So as soon as anyone says new technology, people kind of get scared about mm. it. Um, and so that's the kind of the first thing. 
Then I think the example you said with fertility, there's that fear of the unknown. Now, I think fertility of all the kind of reasons to be hesitant is the one I, as someone who talks to people about kind of reasons for about vaccination, um, is one I can most understand. Mm. Um, my own sister was actually quite hesitant because she was wanted to try for a second and was like, I'm not sure if I want to have the vaccine. Mm-hmm. I trust trust you, your opinion on, on that, um, on the safety of it, but we don't know how it can affect it. Mm. And yes, we don't really know long term if it could have an effect, but I can say as a scientist, I understand the mechanism about how these vaccines work. Mm. There is no way scientifically that it could really interfere with fertility. Mm-hmm. But I can't definitively say it won't. Mm-hmm. So that's that kind of thing. It's like you, because people want a definitive answer. Yeah. And if you can't give it to them, they urge on the kind of side of hesitancy. There, well, there was even hesitancy in the communication of the vaccines towards um, pregnant women yeah. as to whether they should at the beginning take it mm. or not. And you can see then it's like, I'm I'm responsible for something else inside me as well. It's a big responsibility and and it's terrifying and slightly disgusting. But anyway. And, you know, even in that stage, you know, you're not, you're told you can't, you shouldn't eat cheese, you shouldn't eat pate, you shouldn't eat sushi, you shouldn't eat all of those. It shouldn't have anything. And so being able to then make a decision on a vaccine that is new as well, even though the side effects may be pretty similar. But again, it's that understanding um, and if you don't have access to all of that knowledge, which I suppose most of us didn't, especially within mm-hmm. developing the vaccines. Not at the start. And obviously that was one of my jobs early on in the pandemic was speaking to journalists and making sure that they understood that information to kind of put out there and kind of have it. It was put in a, as clear a way as possible. Um, and I think that kind of brings us on. I mean, the, the example with uh, preg- pregnancy, again, is one of those things that we're Scientists generally, when they're testing vaccines, obviously pregnant women are one of the biggest groups that are, A, very important to vaccinate for major diseases, but also the one that you kind of have to be really careful with. Mm. So you have to show that a vaccine is safe in a lot of different other populations. You obviously go healthy people first, then you will kind of go up and down the age groups, usually older, and then maybe moving down into children if it's a vaccine that's needed in children. Then you go into people who are sick, people who have underlying health conditions. We, For example, you would test a vaccine like ours, um, which is a viral-vectored one, um, in HIV-positive people before you'll test it in people who are pregnant deliberately. And obviously, during a clinical trial, when you're testing vaccines, you will occasionally get people who fall pregnant just uh, by, by natural means during the pregnancy, uh, during the kind of the clinical trial. And those obviously give you an in- indication um, of obviously the safety of the vaccine, but also ultimately you need to kind of wait until kind of later periods where either you've got real life data on people who obviously have accidentally got pregnant, um, or then once you kind of know that it's safe in a lot wide range of populations, you can actually do some tests and probably do clinical trials to show it is safe. Um, and the kind of ironic thing is it's actually really important to kind of vaccinate mm-hmm. pregnant women. And we have vaccines that are specifically designed during pregnancy. So whooping cough is the, probably the most well-known one um, that you get early in pregnancy. The flu vaccine is very mm. important. And vaccination is important at passing on things like antibodies can be passed from mother to child. Mm. Um, and it's no different if you go in kind of um, kind of the real world, people are getting exposed to things all the time. Mm. Um, obviously, there are some d- diseases that are more dangerous for pregnant women than others, but a lot in a lot of cases, it doesn't necessarily hurt the baby. Mm-hmm. And that must be a hard thing to work out as well with the vaccines in terms of who needs them or who to prioritise. Yeah, no, definitely. And obviously with a lot of diseases, you when you come to develop a vaccine, you will look at the kind of disease profile. Who is that disease affecting? So you get a lot of diseases that affect children. Now, obviously, when you, the reason that children are mostly affected is because obviously they haven't built up an immune response that can protect them against that disease. They're also just touching they things. They need to eat all dirt. The time. They touch <laughs> everything. They lick things. Like, put your tongue back in your mouth and stop licking the no, table. Because then they wouldn't have a good immune system. No, but then I want to sit it's there and it's the covered in system. slobber. <laughs> it's like you've got a really slobbery dog, but it's just a child. <laughs> yeah, not as cute. No. Not as cute. <laughs> now I'm eat, eat your nose um but yeah so obviously ch- children are a natural kind of thing and obviously interestingly if you look at vaccinating children you don't really nest for a lot of diseases that we kind of are exposed to in their day-to-day lives for the first six months 
of their life, they're actually protected against a lot of diseases mm-hmm. because they get antibodies from their mother and they kind of re- reduce over around six months. So a disease that I, I worked on in, in, in before COVID was um, salmonella. So I was mm-hmm. working on, a, so it's with salmonella, there's kind of literally 2000 different types of salmonella. Um, we got typhoid fever, which is one. And then we pretty much, and then paratyphy. And then we pretty much group everything else in kind of non-typhoidal salmonella. I didn't even think that they were connected. I thought typhoid was the thing and salmonella i just connect with um, raw chicken and eggs and yep. Ed- edwina curry oh egg lady edwina curry yeah <laughs> but i thought typhoid was water and dirty water no, that connection ty- ty- yep. but it's the it's same a sal- it's a salmonella it's a it's a type of salmonella um so all those ones that cause food poisoning that you get in eggs and chicken are in that kind of group of 2000 odd different ones um, and that's what I was working on. And that's if you like in the UK, people just get a bit sick and get food poisoning. But if you go into Africa, people get mm-hmm. quite serious mm-hmm. disease and can die of it. Um, and so particularly the people who are affected are children from six months to five years. By five years, you've kind of built up your natural immunity to it. Um, so we're working on trying to understand that. Um, so that's your kind of children group. Now, obviously, then you've got in adulthood, most people are protected. You want to vaccinate people to stop the spread of diseases. But generally, most diseases aren't going to kill adults. If you take something, go back to malaria, which is a good example. Again, malaria affects people, children in those mm. kind of early ages. But as you kind of get up to that kind of adulthood, you're kind of protected against malaria. But you still ha- can get malaria. Yeah. So you're protected against malaria disease, but you very easily will have a malaria infection that you just kind of get on with. Mm. Like it just doesn't really make you ill, but you can very easily transmit it via mosquito yeah. bite and things like that. Um so that's kind of a population you don't really worry about it once they're kind of that age but in children it can kill them and then obviously you've got the diseases that affect the kind of older generations and the reason that older generations are affected is different to the children children haven't seen they haven't got any immune response in older adults it's because your immune response declines as you get older so we we struggle to make kind of those oh, new memories everything i hear about getting older i'm like oh my god it's all right we'll put you down please do because i i can't <laughs> be dealing with that i mean after a year of not seeing anyone well, my first common cold was like i was dying but yeah so yeah being old shit that's i mean that's we don't we definitely uh, know that but yeah from from a point of view of kind of infectious disease in a lot of cases, there are some major diseases that obviously affect us. And, and with, with COVID, again, obviously, we realise that people who are older are generally more susceptible. Um, but sometimes older people can produce a really good response against things. Um, and obviously, yeah, things like the flu jabs and, and um, obviously our vaccines that we can need to have year on year. And that's partly to combat this kind of decline in our immune system. But yeah, flu is a really interesting one because obviously... With the kind of flu vaccine, yeah, we make it year on year, but everyone thinks that year on year it's a completely different flu. But actually, there's kind of a combination of a couple of well, a couple of hundred different types of flu that you could theoretically have. I find that amazing, that particularly because I have never actually types. had the flu, and I don't know anyone who has ever actually had the flu. The only time I've heard people say they had the flu is when they've had a really bad cold and I'm naming no names Sarah but you know exactly what I'm talking about they've had a really bad cold they're like I've got the flu and then three days later they're recovered and it's like that is not the flu (laughs) that's very much not the flu no um I mean yeah I've never had flu I don't really know anyone who's had the flu particularly but obviously before covid I mean a lot of the winter excess winter deaths were down to flu mm -hmm. and we kind of again we kind of forget that um, that hundreds and hundreds of people a week died, which didn't necessarily need to because they had the flu. And again, flu vaccines aren't perfect. Um, and part of the difficulty with flu vaccines is predicting what flu is going to come around. Mm. So when we talk about those bits on the outside of kind of viruses and pathogens, with flu, there's kind of two main parts. So there's uh, one called neuraminidase, which is N, and hemagglutinin. So they H. really need to get better at they naming do. these things. If you they know, were named like Sid and Trevor, I'd be like, oh, or chill. even like plants. You know, plants got their Latin name, but then they have their common name. You, you know, want can a we Daisy also jump. just have a common? Yeah, exactly. Have a common name for them as well. Yeah, I definitely agree. The naming can be can be better with a lot of scientific things, but I think especially with viruses because there's so many. Mm. Um, but yeah, so with with flu, you got those two parts, and essentially you can have kind of different combinations. Now, there's some which are really common. So your kind of bird flu mm-hmm. um, is actually a couple of different flus, really. And 
Some of these flus caused the kind of big major pandemics in the past, and they're still around. They just come back every so often. Um, and which one comes each year generally determines how many people die because some are worse than others. Um, but it's really difficult to know exactly which ones are which. And you obviously have to plan to make a flu vaccine a year in advance because to make enough flu vaccine, it takes a long yeah. time to manufacture, yeah. as we've learned in the kind of pandemic. It's great to have a vaccine, but you have to make enough to get to people. And mm -hmm. that's obviously the one limiting step with vaccine development that is kind of the hardest thing to kind of develop. And I think if you look like, for example, as for our, kind of our role in the kind of pandemic in developing the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, now we're an academic lab. So one of the points we were talking about earlier is when you decide to make a vaccine. Now, a lot of those kind of easy to make commercial vaccines that we have all the time are manufactured by industrial kind of uh, labs and stuff. And obviously they make profit out of that. Um, they take the easy ones. If it doesn't, if it's a difficult vaccine, they just generally don't bother. And that's where academic groups kind of take on the kind of real challenges. Um, and so for us, like this, the COVID-19 vaccine is the first vaccine other than one that's kind of, kind of got into the kind of late stages that was rolled out globally. Mm. Um, and so going from, oh yeah, we've made a vaccine, we've tested it in small scale clinical trials, We've shown that it works like some of our malaria ones. Our leading malaria one is still being kind of the final stages of testing in Africa. Um, we had never gone to, oh, yes, we've made a vaccine. Great. Now we need to make it for the entire world. I mean, we recently announced we made two billion doses. Did you have a little bit of an oh shit moment? You were like, this is great, but also, oh shit. <laughs> Not me personally, but the, the team who kind of were involved in making the vaccine. We're used to making it in kind of small batches in the lab. Like imagine like a big kind of jug. Yeah. I mean, you kind of grow it in these kind of big cylinders and stuff. So we're used to making, I don't know, enough vaccine for 100 people or maybe max a couple of thousand people. And we've got our own little on-site manufacturing facility here in Oxford um, called the Clinical Biomanufacturing Facility. Um, and that's great if you want to kind of test early stage vaccines. But when you obviously need to make millions and millions or up to billions of doses, we can't do that ourselves. And that's obviously where the kind of collaborations with industry kind of came in. And that kind of step up is something that's just never how we've never had to think, think of before. Mm. So that was a real challenge in kind of um, working out the logistics and, and also updating the technology to be able to scale mm. up. It's not as simple yeah. as just go, oh yeah, it, I can make it, like make beer in a keg. Can you make beer in a kind of, you know, what's a bigger volume, like enough to fill a football stadium. So um, people would appreciate a bit of beer to fill a football stadium, I'm sure. Swimming in the beer. Oh God. As a, as a random aside on the beer thing, I've always wanted to like theorise how you could make a vaccine beer. Because you can make vaccines in yeast, so you could make a vaccine <gasps> in a beer. That would be so much better than an Look injection, out in the wouldn't it? I don't like beer. Right? I'd rather have the injection. <laughs> <laughs> if you can make it in a gin, I'm down. <laughs> Might be a bit harder. Yeah. Alcohol generally, well, so we do, I mean, there's there's a very small amount of uh, alcohol in vaccines, which is there as a stabiliser. Oh, you need to start promoting that more. Put that on Facebook and everyone will be down Well, there no, again. that puts people off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's as much as you get in a banana. That's the kind oh. of uh, the number we always use. Because obviously, again, it's one of the things when you're considering t informing people about vaccines, you have to disclose the things in there. And obviously for mm -hmm. Muslims who might not be drink, oh, yeah. might not drink. It's a concern they have. So one of the important things going before you kind of say, look, we're rolling out this vaccine is to go, for example, to religious leaders and say, look, these are some things in the vaccine that are maybe a little bit controversial um, and get their mm. approval. I mean, a good example with ours is that in the early stage manufacturing process of our vaccine, we make the vaccine in human cells. Um, so these are essentially cells from an aborted fetus. Mm -hmm. But this was in the 80s. So obviously this cell line, if you know anything about kind of HeLa cells, which there's been a kind of bit, there's kind of really nice story between the origin of HeLa cells, which are a cancer cell line that's used widely across science. Um, but essentially, yeah, these come from a, a originally a source that some people might not consider ethical mm. if you're obviously anti-abortion. Um, yet, obviously, it was important to have the backing, say, of the Catholic Church and and, the, and also the Pope himself. There was a, wasn't there a woman whose cells were taken without her knowledge? And she has cells, pioneered yeah. so much science discovery of, of all sorts of things to do with cancer, but she never gave consent. Never knew about it. Mm. Yep, so that's Henrietta Lacks. So there's a really brilliant book that if you love popular science, it's called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It's a popular science book. It's not particular science. It's all about 
how the story of this woman who, yeah, she's a black woman in America who basically had cancer and died and they took her cells. They found that they happened to grow amazingly in the lab. And from there, they literally, those cells have been to space. And this book explores this idea that how, obviously exploring how she didn't understand. She didn't know about these kind of cells and what they were used for. And it's a really nice kind of exploration story of like how her family now mm. are kind of being included in the science and, and have all that explained to them and and really opening up discussions about kind of bioethics going forward. Because mm. a lot of stuff in the past wasn't necessarily ethical in, in some science and we have to learn from that. And again, coming back to that idea of hesitancy we were talking about, that distrust of science in certain communities, in obviously in in the black American communities, there's some distrust of science and um, typically black groups are one of the most hesitant kind of minority groups. And that comes from mm. the basis that, for example, in the States, there's the Tuskegee um, kind of uh, experiment where essentially they gave black people syphilis to test how syphilis yeah. and went and out without telling them. It was a them. theory for Jeez. a while as well that black people couldn't feel pain and like all of these things. Yeah. All this yeah. really racist science yeah. that unfortunately has branded modern scientists who do live by a lot more ethical codes now mm, yeah. than they used to. Um, yeah, so we have to obviously acknowledge these things to be able to move forward. Mm. And so there's no point hiding the fact that these are facts, these did happen. Um, but we reassuring individuals that, yes, that did happen in the past, but it's never going to happen again can yeah. really be a challenge. Yeah, we're not we're not continuing the sort of science research of Burke and Hare and digging up dead bodies. <laughs> You're not. Somebody <laughs> might be. You never know. Back to the vaccines then. How do you test a vaccine? Because, you know, especially if you're trying to make a vaccine for something that might be coming on the horizon, um, is it like, we'd want some volunteers <laughs> and... Roll up, we'll give you 50 quid to shove gonna this I'm going to give you the you. vaccine and I'm going to go and rub you against the thing and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, so again, this is where a lot of people's kind of concerns went, oh, the, the kind of coronavirus vaccine's been rushed. But actually, if you look at the process, there's a lot of reasons for why we managed to condense the whole process that we normally do into a much shorter period. Because I was sitting there going, well, if they can do this this quickly, why can't they do everything else this quickly? I was getting really annoyed. (laughs) It's called money. As with everything, money makes the world go round. And if you've got money and support and a lot of interest, you can generally make things go a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so the kind of general process for kind of um, developing a vaccine. So you'll, you'll come up with your candidates. Of, as we mentioned, those roll bits up, on, roll up. virus or bacteria you want. And the first stage is usually to do what we call preclinical testing. So this is essentially animal testing. So you will test that vaccine in animals. So usually mice, and you'll basically give the vaccine to mice, see what their immune response is, and then get, will give you an indication whether the vaccine potentially could work in people. Now, obviously, mice aren't a perfect model. Which, of course, is then another ethical issue because there will be some people who go, yes. well, they test it on <laughs> animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, animal t- animal rights protesters are a pain in the arse. I will happily say that. And uh, but there's there's some logic behind obviously fake now that we kind of advance more phasing out animal mm-hmm. animal research. And I do think there's some things we really do need to test it. But animal research can be done unnecessarily as well. So I think there's a scientist who do acknowledge that it is something that we should phase out. And there's lots of research grants. Actually, one of my good friends has, has done a lot for her tuberculosis research where she's looking at new methods of phasing out animal research. So you can do stuff in kind of cell lines and things mm. like that. So they're kind of cell lines that are human cell lines mm-hmm. from stem cells or things like that, you can test in that kind of line. Um, and so once you've done those early stage testing and you've got an idea that your vaccine works, also making sure things like the vaccine's not toxic, because obviously, for example, some vaccine candidates are literally the toxins that bacteria produce, for example. So, so you're not going to cause more harm. Exactly. So a tetanus vaccine is made from tetanus toxoid. So tetanus toxoid is one of the toxins that the causes the disease and makes us ill, obviously you weaken it so it doesn't make people sick, but you obviously have to make sure you do that. If you kill your mice in your preclinical experiment, you know you've kind of gone wrong and you need to adapt it. Um, so those are obviously really important stages. Um, once you've kind of done those and shown potentially that the vaccine could work, you move on either to kind of a larger scale model. So you might move in some cases, again, the kind of ethical considerations, monkeys, for example, because they're close relative to humans. But that's not always the case. Um, I think in a lot of cases you can go from um, vaccines in animals through to gossy vaccines in humans. Um, also, with some vaccines, you actually want to test them in animals because they can also be used in animals. So there's some diseases mm-hmm. like tuberculosis that obviously 
you could do parallel research for vaccines that work in cows and vaccines that might work in humans. And then you're there with the vaccine centre bringing all your monkeys in and giving them a little sticker at the end going, well done, monkey, you did a really good job. Oh, come on, how cute is that? I love it. I think that would be really cute. I was also thinking about bird flu and how you could bring in the humans and test the vaccines for the birds on the humans. <laughs> a, lo- a lot of a lot of what we learn from human vaccines can be applied to animals as well so it works both ways like it, it, it that's and now that's an argument which i've used kind of for people who are kind of hesitant from the kind of animal research stuff it's like but if we develop a vaccine that helps the animals is that better um but yeah so once obviously you've got that you get some humans to help now obviously um kind of when you obviously recruit people for vaccine trials you provide all the information about what the vaccine is and what the kind of dosing is what the potential side effects might be And with a lot of cases, we've used a technology that we're really familiar with. So again, this comes down to this idea that vaccine is all the research for the COVID vaccine has been done in one year. Well, no, actually, the technology Mm. that we're using for that vaccine, we've been working on it for 15 years, improving and developing that technique. So we know the side effects. We know roughly what that kind of vaccine, um, how effective it is at producing an immune response, the type of immune response that it gives, because immune responses can be really, really different. Different diseases need different types of immune responses um, and, and you can kind of tweak your vaccine accordingly. And so obviously you provide all that information up front and obviously ask for, people, as I said, for consent to give people a vaccine. And that's obviously one of the most important parts of any vaccine trial is making sure that people understand that not only what they're taking part in, but the fact that they can withdraw at any time. So if you take part in the vaccine trial and when you come on the day to have that vaccine, you decide, I really, really don't want this. You can walk away. It's absolutely fine. Um, I don't like the doors. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so obviously, once we provided that information and we obviously run people through the vaccine trial. Now, a vaccine trial can take anywhere from six months to a year. Typically, um, you kind of have with our vaccine, a vaccine, usually eight weeks kind of between. But we've done tested four weeks. We've tested 16 weeks to look at how that affects the kind of immune response and whether it gives you a better or weaker immune response. And so with those people that you're you're testing that on as well, do you carefully select those? Because I was thinking about... No, you just get a big fishing hook and just sort of... Well, well the fact that trip. whether you just go, we're inviting anyone and everyone and get a broad selection or whether you're targeting certain people so how does that work um so that's a really good question so yes so we want uh initially we want healthy people because when you're obviously testing to see if a vaccine's safe you want to look if it's safe in healthy people as a first instance typically between ages 18 and 55 are the kind of starting point for a lot of our vaccine trials um in in oxford obviously a ready source of volunteers is students uh, particularly <laughs> medical students because they're they understand the kind of reasons behind it um, I wouldn't say the majority of students are healthy, though, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> Different types of healthy. Yeah. <laughs> their, their liver might not be the healthiest. But we do screen people to make sure. So there might be obviously like invisible underlying conditions that some people have, which might exclude them. So you get a free health check for doing this. You get like a free little health MOT. I, and, I want to do and, one. And money sometimes too. Oh, why has nobody signed me up for these? So we do offer compensation. So a compensation will be based on how many blood tests you have, how many vaccines you have, and how long it is. So vaccine trials can range from the kind of compensation you get from a few hundred up to a couple of few thousand pounds. And how can I do these? <laughs> I can send you the link afterwards. Excellent. <laughs> so with that as well, going back to our, our talking mm. about um, anti-vaxxers and that whole um, education of what goes on within this. Of I'll course teach we... you on Facebook going, I'm not going to get a vaccine. <laughs> so, of course, we also had um, reporting of uh, tr- clinical trials where there are issues with the people who were taking part in clinical trials. So how do we deal with all of that communication? Yeah, so, I mean, that was really difficult. So, I mean, a classic example of that reporting, it started right at the start. So our first volunteer who was vaccinated um, was a lady called Eliza Granato. Um, she was the first person given our vaccine in clinical trials. A couple of days later, someone somewhere reported that she had died. Straight off the bat, anti-vaxxer just threw out there, oh, yeah, she's died already, just to kind of try and shut down the vaccine trials. So, I mean, we had to kind of obviously like work out. She had a live feed interview and stuff with Fergus Walsh from BBC just to kind of show on social media. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am actually alive. She's here. <laughs> I'm not dead. Surprise, surprise. Bet you thought you'd see the last of me. <laughs> the fact we had to do that straight off the bat meant we knew we were up kind of 
going to have some challenges. Um, yeah. And obviously it's that kind of mix because obviously there's some reporting of, of kind of major side effects and stuff, which you do have to take seriously. So you get pauses in vaccine trials. So if you, when you're recording events, if anyone dies in a vaccine trial, they could get run over by a car. You have to investigate to make sure that that wasn't related to the vaccine. And this is a really important safety set. But obviously when a vaccine trial pauses, you're not going to instantly go, oh yeah, this person died in a car crash. You have to pause it, and then the press just decides to speculate. And that obviously is offers yeah. a challenge because you obviously have to go, that we're not pausing it necessarily for a reason that's a major concern. But equally, you might have some things that are medical reasons um, that someone's been affected. Um, so kind of adver- major adverse event, and you obviously have to do the important thing step of investigating it and making sure that it isn't a concern before you can restart the, challenge, uh, rest- restart the vaccine trial. Um, and so... That kind of interface between managing kind of media mm. um, responses to these things is a really important thing. And again, it's not something we've had to deal with in the past. We've done loads of vaccine studies previously, and the press aren't really interested. The only thing they're interested in is maybe the end results. And even then, it's only if it's a couple of vaccine trials down. None of the vaccine trials mm. I've worked on in the past couple of years have ever even had a whiff of news interest but obviously this because it's a global pandemic and of global interest we've been right at the forefront of everything so Mm. and i think the kind of main thing has been building relationships with the media um at the start of the pandemic um we obviously yeah very much i was one of the ones involved in speaking to kind of journalists and things like this because we didn't have anyone to manage it eventually we got the university's help but i'd be on the phone to bbc journalists going oh yeah this is explaining the science behind it and going look this is what try and understand um, help them understand what the kind of consequences are of the kind of and the way the immune system works and all these kind of de- minor details. Um, but I'm not media trained. I just am a scientist who knows it and has an interest in doing comms and media. Um, so that side was, yeah, very much mm. challenging. That was mm. when you went home when I'm going to have a large gin tonight, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I definitely got my gin collection definitely uh, got uh moved through quite quickly (laughs) (laughs) know that feeling well (laughs) um right really important question how do you get the chips into the vaccine (laughs) Mm, that's that's a secret that only bill gates knows (laughs) that that's always that's always been one of my favorites i mean and this is the part of the thing with with kind of when we go on to the proper anti-vax kind of things i mean i like to compare it to playing whack-a-mole like you literally they'll come up with a random ridiculous idea and then you spend all your effort going right how can i debunk this and show that it's absolute nonsense by the time you've spent all that effort doing it that's disappeared and they've come up with a new random thing so actually the best thing you can do is just not try and fight these kind of ridiculous ideas and just go, look, I'm going to provide a really good place to find really good, accurate information. And we've done some quite cool things or the scientific community. For example, there's a a UN-backed initiative called Team Halo, which is basically getting people from all around the world, from all walks of life, doctors, scientists, nurses, um, students, to talk about science on social media platforms and particularly use places like TikTok. But it's a difficult place to kind of go because you're battling directly against all these misinformation things and the, you know, the kind of the way that the whole system set up and like who gets followed and who does this, mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of plan for. So like, but if you reach out to a certain crowd and particularly younger people, it's a great place to kind of work. And early in the pandemic, we found this really cool thing where trying to reach out and try different avenues. Like the University of Oxford obviously has the University of Oxford Facebook pages or this and that. Now, certain people will look at that. But the average person's probably not going to look at our things. So we went, OK, how can we reach out to, say, children, which is using a, a, a platform that they understand and they follow? So we would have reached out to kind of social media influencers of that age. Mm-hmm. So I did a 15 minute interview with uh, this really cool influencer called Amazing Arabella, who's like a, a teenager who's done a lot of, kind of modeling and worked, I think, for like Disney and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she interviewed me. And we kind of released this interview on Instagram, on Instagram Live. Uh, well, it wasn't live because it's just Instagram. But um, and in the first hour, we had thirty-three thousand hits. Wow. In the first in the week, we had a hundred thousand hits. That's more like average. Like Oxford post on our Facebook page gets a couple of thousand. 
So we just by changing the way we do things, we can reach a very, very different audience. And all those family members of those that were involved in the post at the time. Pretty much. Honestly, you see that stuff come up on the university like Facebook pages and half the likes are my colleagues. Yeah. Um, but the idea of talking to different people who different groups who are hesitant for different reasons, like a sports player is hesitant because they're like, oh, would I take a vaccine because it might affect my performance in the sport yeah they'd take it if it did positively if it improved it exactly (laughs) and this is part of the argument um rather than healthy african population will have completely different reasons for being hesitant uh historic and obviously like local cultural things so you have to kind of think on your feet and just adapt the kind of way you talk about the science and, and and communicate it but underlying the underlying facts and cool ways of kind of explaining the science are kind of the kind of creative part of the kind of job. Mm. As you mentioned, kind of like like analogies and stuff, and that's one of the things that I like. I personally oh, like love myself. An and kind of, I do love them. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm writing, writing a few for the moment for the kind of, uh, all kind of reasoning behind the kind of uh, boosters and stuff. And why oh, go on then, give us one, give us one. <laughs> the current vaccines, if you've had two doses, don't really give any protection against Omicron. But if we give a third dose of the original vaccine, that can potentially increase that protection. So why does a vaccine that doesn't work, if you give it another time, help improve that kind of immune response? And so the analogy that I'm coming up with is a bit like watching a kind of your favourite film. So if you watch a film multiple times, it's a bit like being vaccinated. So you, every time you watch it, you pick up on some different details. If, for example, the example I'm going to use is The Lion King. Oh, the Lion King is one of my favourite films. It's a good one. Makes me now, cry every really time. Oh, if you watch The Lion King twice and then do a quiz on it, so that's your primary boost, you've had your two vaccines, you'll be able to answer quite a lot of the questions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, they released a new film, which is the 3D CGI version, which is slightly different. If you've never seen that film, but answer it based on what you've seen in the previous one, you'll probably do okay. Mm. Obviously, then if you watch the film a third time, you'll do it slightly better again. The only questions you won't get are like about Beyonce's new song and some stuff about kind of Timon and Pumbaa and things like that. Timon and Pumbaa are my favourite characters. They are. They are the best. (laughs) Now, if you take it with a different kind of uh, film, look at the Dumbo. Now, Dumbo, they made the new one, the CGI one, is completely different. So that's like your Omicron, really. It's a bit different. There's a lot more differences. But if you actually kind of rewatch the original one, you'll still pick up on the kind of the basic kind of important points. So you'll know that, oh, look, we've got an elephant called Dumbo and... Who knows? Spoiler, he can fly. Um, and it's sad. <laughs> it is sad. But exactly. But those important points are still potentially enough to kind of give you some level of protection. And in the case of a quiz, answer a few different questions. Um, but they're not enough to kind of give you all those kind of variances mm. and the differences mm. that mm-hmm. are a lot more complex. Um, and so there's that then the debate of do you need another vaccine? Now, at the moment, our argument would be you can do enough, probably enough with the original one. To kind of deal with it and give us a bit extra protection. You could just about get enough points. Well, I've think, learned a lot today. I think we've we've managed to get a lot out of this vaccine. Yeah, yeah. And I'm impressed because you know what? We had a pretty good starting point and we've just grown. Do you know we have? Yeah. I mean, you you smashed it right at the beginning with a cow. <sighs> Thank you. Know. you. Um, but yeah, we've got loads more <laughs> absolutely out of the park. Yeah. And a really nice gin. Yeah. Really nice. Thank you for introducing that. Glad you like it. Yeah, I do. I like it a lot. I love the bottle. I love the taste. Um, And I also love all of the um, explanation that you gave about where it's come from and how they produce it and everything as well. So it's been epic. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Oh, you did a clap and everything there. You're very excited, aren't you? I have had a really interesting time talking about vaccines. Much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. More interesting and not as depressing. Yes. And not as coronavirus focused as it could have been. Also malaria and TB and salmonella. Yeah. Yeah. Learned different types of salmonella. Who knew? I know. I know. And that typhoid and salmonella are the same thing. Same thing. Same thing. Um, but naming needs to be much oh. better. I, you know what? Polio, good name. Rolls yeah. off the tongue. Yeah, yeah. Easy. Some of the others, you're just like, really? Yeah. Needs yeah. to be. We need some common names. 
They're a bit more exciting. How we name storms. I like that. Yeah. 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 They're always quite good. Uh, So what have we learnt? Vaccines. The new booster for vaccines is like the different version of The Lion King. Because, um, well, it's more the different... Well, actually, it's, it's more that the... The mutation, isn't it, of the virus has got so many more differences that the. See, you have to you have to go and make it clever, Sarah. I'm trying to make it simple at this point. I'm trying to do the what have we learned, easy, simple points, and you go and do the long, proper explanation. I'm like, they've just heard all that. I'm doing the basic version. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vaccines. Lion King. Thank you. Dumbo. Simple, got it. Easy, effective, and that you're having to look on the horizon to try and work out what's coming, what's coming, and therefore what you have to target, and that could be really difficult to try and work out which bit do you target to produce the vaccine. Yeah, and scientists may not know everything; they may not be able to give you a definite answer, but they will give you all the facts, and all you have to do is ask. They're very happy to chat. Totally. Yeah. There aren't any chips in the vaccine. Nope, no chips, and it is doing what it should be doing, and it is giving those levels of protection. And you can sign up for clinical trials. (laughs) And that we are, absolutely, and we're at that point of trialling something like malaria that's been so cool in the pipeline for 20 years. But you know what? I really struggled talking about malaria because all I can think of is Cheryl Cole. Why? Because she got malaria and it was a big thing. And that's all I ever think of when I hear about malaria, very wrongly, is Cheryl Cole talking about having malaria. And I can't do her voice... But it's all I can hear in my head. Oh, well, eventually there could be a vaccine. Won't the Cheryl now. Cole vaccine. Maybe it should be called a Cheryl oh, Cole vaccine. No, she's not Cheryl Cole anymore, is she? She's oh, she's just know. Cheryl now. Don't keep up. Oh, really? Yeah, because she was Cheryl fernandez Vecini. Well. And then she had a baby with Liam Payne. Called it Bear. Oh, and she first I... met him when he was 16. Okay, I found vaccines more interesting than Cheryl Cole. I'm just giving you facts. <laughs> like the cow facts, I oh, come equipped with knowledge. Facts. I know, I'm actually dead impressed with myself. Now. I'm quite impressed with that. I dragged well. that up from God knows where. And the basically vaccines came from seeing somebody with pussy, horrible boils and, and going, I, I'll take some of that, I'll put it in somebody else, and that will help them to fight off that virus or that infection or that whatever and that actually is really cool because it is just taking a little bit and putting it inside and then your immune system just goes kaboom kaboom it does and then puts that bubble wrap so yeah we learned a lot what a day what a day You got to the end, so hopefully you did. (laughs) That's very true. Well done. If you'd like more content from us, you can follow us on Instagram. You can. And you'll also find our chief gin taster, the gin monkey, with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series. Go on to Instagram, so it's worth following. Yeah, yeah. Topic gin. Topic gin. Same on Twitter. Same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can if you want at hello at ginandtopic.com. If you click subscribe as well, that would be really handy. Reviews, tell people. for you to do. And we'll be back next week with another episode. I know. And another guest. And another gin. Yay. And don't forget to join me and Emma in our tasting room on Sunday and she can tell us all about the gin.